is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full-Time Travel. And every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest today is Laurie Woolever, writer, editor, public speaker, graduate of the French Culinary Institute in New York, and former assistant to Anthony Bourdain, with whom she co-wrote several books. The most recent of which, World Travel and Irreverent Guide, Laurie sadly had to complete alone following Bourdain's death in 2018. Today, Laurie shares memories from Sri Lanka, where she joined Bourdain, or Tony, as she affectionately calls him, on a shoot for the TV show Parts Unknown. For Laurie, this trip was part business, part pleasure. An opportunity to explore the lush island nation with her friend and mentor while working on a story about Sri Lankan home cooking. But it was especially significant because she was newly sober. Navigating triggers and travel rituals that involved alcohol was challenging, but the experience shifted Laurie's perspective. To her surprise, the world was bigger and better without the booze. This interview is full of wonderful personal anecdotes about Anthony Bourdain, the traveler, plus loads of insider tips that food obsessives will appreciate. So without further ado, please enjoy Laurie Woolever. Hi, Laurie. Glad we could finally do this. (laughs) So the first question I like to ask everyone is, where did your love of travel originate? Great question. I suppose it was as a child, you know, my family and I didn't go on many far-flung adventures, but the things that we did do really made a huge impact on me. It was the most special time to travel with my family. We went to Disney World a couple of times when I was a kid. And what was really kind of, I think, added to the trip, although it's going to sound terrible, we drove from New York State to Florida, which took about two and a half days. And this was in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, you know, air travel was prohibitively expensive for my family. And so it just was like, well, if we're going to go to Disney, we're going to get in dad's truck and we're going to drive for two and a half days. And I think it really made it that much more special because there was so much anticipation and you know, it was such a journey. You know, it wasn't just get on an airplane and be there in three hours. It was a trek to get there. And so it was really just such an, a magic experience to finally get to our destination and then be there. And I was lucky enough to go three times with my family. So that and we would go to a lake in New Hampshire every summer. And again, it wasn't anything super far flung, but it was an eight hour drive. And it was always the same place. So we had all these memories that we started with. And then we kind of built on them year after year. A lot of times some of the same families would be there the same week that we were. And So those experiences really, I think, set me up to understand how transformative travel could be and also to understand that it's not always about getting to the place right away, the easiest, most comfortable way possible, but such a cliche, but letting the journey be part of the experience. Absolutely. And you have siblings? I do. I have an older sister who's two and a half years older. And so how old were you when you used to do these long road trips? (laughs) The first one, I was four years old and she oh, was wow. six and a half or seven. I, you know, I really give my parents a lot of credit for, <laughs> for doing that. You know, and then, again, this was the late seventies. There were no electronics. There was just my memory is that we had our sleeping bags. My dad had a pickup truck that had a back seat that would fold down. So it was the two of us kind of in a nest of sleeping bags and pillows and uh, of course, no seatbelts to speak of. <laughs> uh, and just books and coloring books and maybe some dolls and snacks. And that was kind of it. And, uh, you know, I think we were well-behaved, good kids. And I'm sure my dad had a stern talk with us before we took off that we shouldn't be fighting and whining. And, you know, as far as I recall, we got along. We did it. I'm sure there were moments of, you know, boredom or discomfort, but I don't really remember that. I just remember that it was this A really exciting journey to sort of see, uh, you know, upstate New York, Syracuse in the early spring is pretty grim. But as you're driving down through the states on the East Coast, it gets more and more spring-like and the foliage changes. And so to see all that sort of unroll in real time, I think was a really educational experience for us. Mm. And you've been in New York City for 
three decades now. Is that right? Almost. Yeah. I, I moved to New York uh, in 1996, right after I graduated college. So yeah, we're coming up on almost 30 years, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> Did you always know you wanted to be in New York? I think once I started college and I started visiting with friends and really got to understand what New York was and what it had to offer, I think it became very appealing to me. Uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I graduated college, but I knew that I needed to be in a place where I, there were a lot of options and a lot of possibilities. And New York seemed like the ideal place for that. I had done an internship when I was a senior in college. So I did spend a couple of months living in New York and starting to learn and understand how to live here. So I was, I had that advantage coming in after I graduated that I had already spent a few months getting to understand the city a little bit. And so that gave me kind of the courage to make the commitment to live here. Mm. And, you know, you did carve out a pretty cool career for yourself. <laughs> so much variety, writer, editor, chef, assistant to the late, great Anthony Bourdain, of course. I'd love to hear a bit more about your career path and how you came to meet Tony. Sure. It feels almost entirely accidental and very uh, serendipitous in a lot of ways. It wasn't what I necessarily set out to do. But again, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to write and I knew that I really enjoyed cooking. And so I just followed those two things on a sort of a strange path. I was very lucky to get a job as a private cook for a family, despite not really having any skills, but they just wanted someone to do very basic cooking. I did that for two years and then went to culinary school because I wanted to really cook. I wanted to really understand how to do it and go beyond just the private world. From there, I was Mario Batali's assistant for three and a half years. And that was a real education in restaurants, business, media, wine, food, you know, New York real estate, just kind of the gamut. It was a really, I felt very lucky to be affiliated with a chef who was on the rise with an extremely popular New York restaurant with a television show. And, you know, I really just had kind of a front row seat to all of these different aspects of the business and of life in New York. From there, I did a lot of freelance writing and eventually became an editor at Art Culinaire magazine, uh, which is a big, beautiful, full color photo magazine with recipes that uh, chefs really love to be in and have their work featured in. And then I went to Wine Spectator, got kind of a crash course in all things wine and winemaking and learned how to be a web editor, which is something I, I hadn't really seen myself doing. And again, right place, right time. You know, the web was people were really starting to understand that the web was here to stay that web and print really needed to be integrated. So it was it was a really exciting time. Then I had a baby and wanted to kind of change my life and not be, you know, in a Manhattan office job 40, 50 hours a week. Uh, I wanted to have a little more flexibility uh, for family. And I had reached out, I reached out to Anthony Bourdain and, and a number of other people. I had worked with him a few years prior on his book, Anthony Bourdain's Layal Cookbook. He needed someone to recipe test and edit. So I just reached out to him and said, listen, I'm, you know, I'm looking to maybe work part-time. If you know anyone or if you hear of anything, please just keep me in mind. And to my great surprise, he said right away, well, actually, you know, my assistant's leaving. I know it's not really what you are looking for, but would you consider being my assistant? You know, I trust you. You worked for Mario. That's good enough for me. I know you're smart and we worked well together on the book. And it was like, oh my God, of course, you know, what a dream to work with him. I had had a really great experience working with him on the cookbook. And so I started doing that. And that was in 2009. And I worked with him right up until the end of his life in, in 2018. And then in some ways, kind of continued to work with him. Uh, we had started writing a book together shortly before he died called World Travel and a Reverent Guide. And I was sort of left to finish it on my own and, and definitely kind of change the course of what the book looked like. And then I also did a biography, an oral biography, called Bourdain, The Definitive Oral Biography, in which I interviewed uh, lots and lots of people who had known Tony all through the course of his life and put together sort of an alternate story of his life, a sort of a companion piece to Kitchen Confidential. Mm, I have so many follow-up questions. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I know that was, that was a lot at once. I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to sit down and work with him on, for example, world travel. Mm -hmm. What was that process like between the two of you? Did you know you were going to be involved in the writing or at the time were you just helping him to structure it and get his notes together? How did it work between you two? 
Uh, I did know that I was going to be involved with the writing uh, because we collaborated on a previous book, uh, a cookbook called Appetites, a cookbook. And so that was my first opportunity to fully co-author a book with Tony. So I understood a little bit what the process was going to be like. You know, Tony had a very strong and sort of inimitable writing voice, and that was always front and center. But he also was a very, very busy person and didn't necessarily have time to sit down and write a whole book on his own. So I did a lot of support writing for the cookbook. You know, I wrote all the recipes. Uh, in some cases, they were things that were out of his head or they were out of books or they were, you know, things he had had on the road. And then for uh, he wrote the essays and I helped him kind of organize and clean them up a little bit. And then we kind of with the headnotes, I wrote scratch headnotes for every recipe. And in some cases, he left them as is. In some cases, he completely threw them out and rewrote new notes. And in some cases, it was kind of a mixed effort of uh, changing up this and that. And so now when I look at those notes, I don't remember and know even which is which. Uh, so it really, it speaks to that we had a great working relationship as far as writing. I was able to at least get the bones of his voice and the things I thought he might want to convey with each recipe. And then, you know, my ego let me kind of stand back and let him, uh, you know, change things up as he saw fit. So, we, you know, we had this great working relationship as writers, and that was my expectation for world travel. We hadn't gotten very far into that process, but the idea was that he was going to write a handful, maybe a dozen essays about different aspects of all the travel he had done over the, you know, 15 years or so that he had been on television. And that I would be making sure that all of the details and all of the facts and figures were correct and were relevant to what he was saying. And again, it was meant to be sort of a seamless collaboration. And unfortunately, we didn't get very far into it. You know, he's very, very busy finishing up filming uh, that season of Parts Unknown and he was just constantly traveling. It was even just to get him to sit down with me to do a meeting about which geographies we would include in the book was a lot of planning. Uh, I was very lucky to have that one meeting. It was maybe an hour and 10 minutes sitting down in his apartment. I had a huge list of every place he had ever traveled for television. And we went through it one by one and talked about you know whether or not it made sense to include it in the book and what things he definitely wanted to include uh, from each geography that he chose. And that really became the blueprint for how I had to proceed with the book once he was gone. Was there any question after he passed away of whether you would finish the book? Did you think about just shelving it and, and letting it be? Or did you feel like you had a calling to bring this book into the world? Kind of both. You know, in the immediate days and weeks after his death, I just, it was, it felt like an impossible, ridiculous thing to even consider finishing this book. And I remember having some, you know, painful conversations with our shared literary agent, like, I I'm not sure I can do this. You know, this is really real. I'm having a really hard time. And she was really sympathetic. And I think at the, you know, after the initial few months, uh, it was like, well, to be very blunt, I've cashed the check for my part of the advance. And you know, the Tony's estate, this will benefit for if I finish this book. And that's important to me. And, uh, you know, I was in a position to have all kinds of support and resources from Tony's production company and from his publisher and his literary agent. You know, everyone that in that world was kind of rooting me on giving me access to information that I needed. Uh, the people that made television with him were very, very helpful to me in answering questions and in some cases contributing essays or doing interviews that really helped me finish the book. So yeah, it was it was really hard at first and I wasn't sure that I was up to the task. And then it was like, well, you know, what would Tony do or what would Tony want me to do? And that was really a, a guiding principle in uh, helping me get it done. But it was, you know, it was hard and, and very lonely. And, and having started the project with the idea that I would be doing it with Tony, that I would be traveling in order to fill out my understanding of some of these places and then just, you know, sitting at my dining room table having lost my job and my friend and mentor and boss and just having to be me and my computer. It was it was really lonely, but I'm very, very pleased with what came out of it. Mm, it turned out great. And fun fact, I have a copy that's signed by you. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. Anyway, so I want to talk a bit more about the fact that, you know, obviously you had this great working relationship, but you also had a friendship. Mm -hmm. And 
you would get to accompany him on one trip a year, all expenses paid as he shot Parts Unknown. Mm -hmm. Tell me a bit more about these trips and and how they came about and what sort of logistics went into them. Sure. So probably two or three years into my working as Tony's assistant, you know, at first I hadn't been traveling much at all because I had a, a baby and, you know, it was hard to get away from a baby for any length of time and it just wasn't an issue. And then I think my son was maybe three or four and I booked a few days for just myself to go to Cartagena, Colombia. JetBlue had just started flying direct from JFK and I thought, why not? You know, it was my birthday. I had a friend who was working in a hotel there. And so I just just did it. And I reached out to Tony and said, I'm going to Cartagena. You know, if you have anything to recommend, I know you were there not too long ago. And it was like a, a light went off and he said, oh, you're interested in traveling? You're going to start doing international travel again? And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I'm, I've been dying to do it. You know, now my son's a little bit older and I can leave him without too much guilt. And he said, well, you know, if you ever want to come along on a shoot, I just pick a location, maybe let's say, you know, one location a year and I'll pick up the cost. You fly business class, you stay in whatever hotel I stay in and just do what you want to do. You can either hang out with us and see how the show is made, or if you want to pitch stories and you know work on your own thing uh, as a magazine or newspaper writer, then do that. And it, so it was really just an extraordinarily generous perk of the job that it just, I think it probably just spontaneously occurred to him and he offered it. And then it was like, from then on, it was like, okay, I'm going to take you up on this. You know, you may regret it, but I'm going to do it. And so every year, starting in 2014, I did one trip a year and I always went for the really long haul, you know, New York to Asia trips because that was, you know, to have the opportunity to go that far away and to be taken care of and to be in a crew with fixers and, you know, very seasoned travelers and to see things through Tony's eyes. It just felt like, this is an opportunity that I, I don't want to waste. So starting in 2014, I went to Hue, Vietnam with the crew. And then the next year, we went to Okinawa, Japan. The following year was uh, sort of a couple of stops in Japan. We started in Kanazawa and then went to Tokyo. And then the next year was Sri Lanka. And we tacked on a Manila trip because there were some business we were doing in Manila and then the final year that I traveled was to Hong Kong. So I really got to see some extraordinary places and and do things that I don't know that I ever would have been able to do, not the least which is flying business class to and from Asia, which I got incredibly spoiled. I don't know if I'll ever be able to uh, afford that kind of travel again. It was really, it was pretty amazing to go in that kind of comfort. Oh, I feel the same way about some of my experiences as a travel journalist, like staying in these incredible five-star hotels. And I'm like, this is amazing, but this is probably as good as it's going to get for me because I can't afford to do this ever again. Right, right. <laughs> but what an incredible experience. I can't even imagine. I'm very envious. But the trip that we're going to talk about today was a parts unknown trip to Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. So why did you decide on Sri Lanka this time? There were a couple of reasons. It was, you know, one of the most far flung on the list that also was, I mean, there were times where there were, you know, more far flung locations, but there were reasons why it wouldn't make sense for me as an assistant to go, for instance, Antarctica. The preparation for people to go on that trip was two years in the making and it was just not realistic. Or Cuba, which I really wanted to go to. Again, you know, the logistics of getting a group of Americans into Cuba was so complex that they weren't able to just add me at the quote unquote last minute. So Sri Lanka uh, was really appealing to me because it was so far flung, but also because my, at the time, my husband, now my ex-husband, he has relatives by marriage that live in Sri Lanka uh, that are from the Maldives and for different reasons have have relocated to Sri Lanka. And so it was this opportunity to meet people that I was, at least by marriage, related to, to be invited into their homes. I pitched a story to Sever magazine about uh, Sri Lankan home cooking, and I was able to get invitations into three different homes, one of which was the home of the sister of my ex-husband's cousin's wife. (laughs) And she was incredibly welcoming. It was she and her husband who happened to be a professional chef and their son and her mother. And they had us into their home, I think three different days to cook a huge variety of Sri Lankan and uh, Maldivian dishes. And so to have that kind of experience, to have that kind of serendipitous, you know, ability to get there 
and someone that I knew and someone that was so welcoming and wanted to share with me. I just felt like I I would be crazy not to take this experience. Uh, so that was part of it. And then also, um, you know, getting to see a place that had been ravaged by civil war for, I think, close to 30 years. Uh, the first time Tony and the crew went to Sri Lanka, they were still, the war wasn't quite over and things were much different. They weren't able to really move around freely. They weren't able to go to the north of the country. They had to stay in Colombo and there were, you know, armed checkpoints and a, a lot of chaos and disorder. And so be it, to be able to see the country kind of newly opened up, to get to go to the north, to Jaffna and see what things were like there, to meet people and talk to them was, again, just a, a really extraordinary opportunity. It was also your first big trip since becoming sober. That's You'd right. quit relatively recently. So how comfortable were you with your sobriety at that point? Not Terribly, to be honest. I remember going to an AA meeting shortly before I left and just sort of sharing with the group, like, I don't know how this is going to go. You know, I haven't really traveled like this without knowing that there's going to be cocktails on the plane and cocktails when I get there and, you know, all kinds of opportunities to behave badly with alcohol. And this is, you know, it was a big challenge and a, and a little bit scary for me. And ultimately, I stayed sober. We were staying in this beautiful colonial hotel in uh, Colombo called the Gulf Face Hotel. And they're known for these gigantic, beautiful gin and tonics. And they have a very old fashioned bar. And it's like, well, you know, they also have Coke Zero. So that's what I'm going to have. Or I'm going to have a tonic water with a lime in it. And that's going to be okay. And it was, you know, in ways it was better. My sleep was much better. My ability to get up in the morning. I didn't really suffer any of the sort of gastric distress that I had on previous trips, whether or not that was luck or something else, I don't know. But it was a big test for me. And ultimately, it was it showed me that I could do it. You know, I had a weird sort of scary series of events where I was followed on the street. And then I, I had to go buy whiskey for the crew. And I left my credit card at the liquor store. And then I had to go back and I was getting followed. And then the tuk-tuk driver took off with my bag and my passport and my phone. And it was just, it all worked out. But I had an extremely stressful and kind of scary 30 minutes in uh, one night in Jaffna. And I thought, man, if there were ever a time for me to just open this bottle of whiskey and drink it, this would be right now. And uh, I was very lucky to have another sober crew member. Uh, the, the CNN photographer was along and he's been sober for a long, long time. And just as I was starting to feel like, oh God, I want some of this whiskey. He came out of the front of the hotel as I was getting out of the tuk-tuk and was just like, come on, I'll, I'll walk you back to the chicken place and we'll, you know, we'll get the chicken for the crew and it's going to be fun. Fine. You know, you know, let's get you a Mountain Dew. So, you know, these things are just coincidences, but you kind of look at them and go, oh, well, you know, right place, right time. Like that guy just happened to materialize when I was feeling at my lowest and weakest. So it was a really extraordinary trip in a lot of ways and really proved to me that there is a lot of joy and a lot of serenity be to be found sober travel, even when things get rough and, and stressful. I imagine that when you first get sober and you're trying to adjust to that way of being, there must be certain triggers, right? And I'm sure one of the triggers is like the habit of pairing a new cuisine with like the local beer or the local, whatever the local drink is. Mm -hmm. It must have been hard for you since it was all so new to like move past those triggers. So I'm glad that you had that person there to support you. How did you find out that this person was sober? We had met my first trip with Tony in Hue. David, the photographer, showed up uh, maybe a day or two into the trip. Uh, CNN had sent him over just for a couple of days to shoot on location. And I noticed that he was drinking a Mountain Dew. And I think he just volunteered like, yeah, I don't drink. I, I never drink. I have never. I just never started and I don't do it. Or, or maybe he had drank a little bit when he was a teenager. So he was a sober person that I knew well before I decided to get sober. In fact, I, I mean, my nickname for him was Sober David. <laughs> so... Um, uh, so when I knew that he was going to be on the Sri Lanka trip, I was really, really glad because he didn't always, uh, we didn't always overlap on these trips. And this one we happened to, and it was really huge for me. So you were in AA. Did you need to call a sponsor or was it enough to have him there? It was enough to have him there. And actually, it took me a while, to be honest, to actually get a sponsor. Uh, I kind of did it in what people in the program might call half steps. You know, I, I quit drinking in 2017, but I didn't really fully get involved with the program until about until after Tony died, to be honest. You know, I was still 
smoking pot like it was my job and just kind of not really living the most honestly, if I can just be sort of vague about it. And then finally, after, you know, after Tony died and it had been a few months and I just felt like I can't, you know, I have to really, if I'm going to, if this is really going to work for me, I have to do it a hundred percent, you know, and I can't be showing up to meetings stoned or, so yeah, I didn't have a sponsor until probably 2019, just having David there. And, you know, I had a friend back in New York who was also sober, who was not a sponsor, but who was very aware what was going on with me and somebody that I could check in with. So that's great. And you mentioned that, you know, you felt better, the jet lag passed a bit quicker and easier. But I'm also curious because when you eat abroad and you're, you have a drink, I feel like drinking just changes the way that you perceive food, right? Like I always think this is the most delicious thing I've ever had if I'm quite drunk. It doesn't matter if it's done a slice pizza, you know, or some like gourmet meal. So how do you feel like it changed your experience of eating while you were there? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I think it probably just let me really focus on the food. You know, I, I think that when I was drinking, you know, I might be start out slow and just tasting everything. But then for me, when I would drink and start to feel a little intoxicated, I started to pay less attention to what was on the plate and what was going on. And it was more just about continuing to fill my mouth. My experience of sort of addictive behavior is just like, well, if a little is good, then a lot is better, you know, and I think that was the case with food and with drinking. So and drinking for me kind of opened up my appetite, you know, made me sort of not so mindful of like, have I had enough? You know, do I need to finish this? Do I need to go back to the breakfast buffet for seconds or what? You know, probably not. So yeah, I didn't, it didn't take anything away for me of the experience of the food. I'll say the cuisine, a lot of what I was eating in Sri Lanka was very, very spicy. And of course, the first thing that people think about is a beer, you know, with spicy food, but you know, Diet Coke also works. Uh, seltzer water also works, you know, or, or some kind of a yogurt drink or something. It's a habit to have a beer with a spicy food, but it's not a necessity. There are always alternatives and, you know, more and more alternatives uh, than ever. I, I was just in Rome and I had the most delicious mocktail that was celery mocktail, which I was like, well, that sounds kind of gross, but I'm going to try it. And it was incredible, you know, and it was just, it's become so much more the norm that even very high-end restaurant bars will have, you know, six or eight really thoughtful, interesting, non-alcoholic cocktails, which I very much appreciate. Yeah, it's getting better and better. When I was pregnant, I was loving the phony Negronis, <laughs> all kinds of stuff. It's so mm -hmm. good. So let's talk a bit more about Sri Lankan cuisine, because I don't think people in the US are that familiar with it. You know, I can't think of that many famous Sri Lankan restaurants in New York, for example. Um, what did you learn about the cuisine while you were there? So it clearly has a relationship to Indian cuisine and South Indian cuisine in particular, in terms of some of the ingredients, you know, coconut and a lot of seafood. And, you know, the spices are similar and some of the vegetables, there's something called drumstick. There's a lot of okra, you know, a lot of peppers. But my main sort of takeaway in learning about the recipes uh, was that there's a lot more uh, pre-toasting of spices and really punchy, punchy flavor big handfuls of star anise and whole uh, cinnamon bark and lots and lots of black mustard seeds and, you know, lots and lots of whole cloves of garlic and handfuls of curry leaves, all these things toasted together in mustard oil before anything else happens with the dish. And that, to me, I think sort of distinguishes it. Also, a lot of dried fish, which I wasn't hadn't been aware of, which is just, I think, a function of practicality, you know, right. of not having refrigeration. But, you know, you catch a bunch of fish, you salt and dry them, and then they're available to you uh, year round. And there's a whole culture of river crabs that's very um, Sri Lankan. And then things like jackfruit, a lot of fruit curries, uh, again, things that share a lineage with Southern India, but are very much their own based on, you know, being a, a small island nation. In the introduction to World Traveler, you write about the Bourdain effect, that basically once Tony had given his stamp of approval to a specific restaurant, maybe it was a really local, small, low-key place, its popularity would explode and it would transform overnight for better or for worse. <laughs> <laughs> And given everything that we know about over-tourism now and the perils of that, how did that inform the way that you write about this trip and others that you've been on? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, with Sri Lanka, 
I don't worry as much. I mean, with places that are a little less obvious, maybe targets for Western tourists, uh, certainly less traveled by Americans, I feel like there's less fear of things becoming overcrowded. But sure, and any place that I go, you know, I, I don't worry that things that I personally write about are going to be susceptible to the Bourdain effect because I am not. Tony Bourdain. Uh, so, you know, I may get a little attention for things that I've written, but it's not like the glare of the television camera and the endless reruns that those places are more subject to when they've been on television with Tony. You know, this is kind of an ongoing dialogue, right? And travel media is about, do we gatekeep a place or do we blow it up? Do we want to help a business thrive by giving them that attention or are we endangering them? And I think Tony's response and Tony's approach to it is a really good one, which is like, well, let's let the place decide for itself. Now, of course, when you're taking a photo, when you're putting something on Instagram and you're, you know, you're an influencer or you're just an, uh, an enthusiastic traveler, you're not necessarily engaging in the whole process with the business owner. But you know, if, if a business allow themselves to be tagged on Instagram, if they're interested in that kind of thing, then I think they're signaling an openness that they want to be shared with the world. And, you know, there were plenty of places uh, when Tony and his producers would start to develop an episode. There were plenty of places that said, you know what, I'm sorry, we can't have you shoot here. We know what happens. We're not set up for that. And, uh, you know, we we serve a very small local population and we're not willing to take on what happens as a result of being on television. And you, you just have to respect that and move on, you know. So it really, it is, and I wrote this in the book, it, it's a choice that a business makes, you know, whether or not to engage with the public and and be open to the glare of television. So, I think Tony, in some cases, really regretted what happened, but it's, you know, if a place is good and if people want to check it out, that's a positive thing, you know, and in some cases, businesses really adapt to the Bourdain effect. You know, they might uh, expand their footprint or they might hire on more staff or slightly change the way that they do reservations or the, you know, the number of tables, whatever it is to positively accommodate the new attention. So there's no one right answer to how to respectfully share with the world, you know, something that you love. It seems clear that Tony was a very thoughtful traveler. What was it like traveling with him? It was really interesting. You know, there were times when he was kind of amazingly enchanted by something that seemed very ordinary or seemed like, well, he must have seen this a million times. Why is he so thrilled by it? I always think of our time in Tokyo in 2016. We had a few days in Kanazawa. I didn't see him that much because a lot of the scenes they were shooting were kind of very small and there was not a lot of room for extra people around. And so it wasn't until we got on uh, the train together in Kanazawa and took it to Tokyo that I really sort of got to see him up close as a traveler. And uh, we were alone. The crew was taking a couple of vans across the country with all the equipment, but the producers put the two of us together on a uh, Shinkansen train across the country. And we were waiting for the train to arrive on the platform. And I had seen these coffee machines, these, you know, vending machines that, of course, you know, Japan is all of vending machines with all different kinds of interesting things. But the coffee vending machines were really everywhere. I hadn't paid too much attention. But Tony was like, oh, God, I love the coffee vending machines. They're so cool. And just was really, really focused on getting uh, what was actually kind of a shitty cup of coffee, a hot coffee from a vending machine, which is, you know, it's coffee that's been sitting in a metal can that then is heated up by the machine and dispensed to you. And it's not good, but it's novel and it's, we don't have it in the States. And, uh, you know, it's very, very Japanese. And so he was kind of so focused on how cool this machine was that he failed to notice that he had dropped his paper train ticket on the platform. And I'm just watching this going, Oh my God, you know, it's a windy spring morning and I can just see like the ticket falling into the tracks and, you know, us not being able to get on the train. And so that was the other thing was, you know, seeing him be just the same kind of vulnerable traveler that anyone else is, you know, I mean, I think there was this concept of Tony as the coolest guy in the world and the most suave. And, you know, he's been everywhere and he knows how to handle every situation. And Sometimes that was the magic of editing. You know, he was sometimes a really uh, just an awkward guy and a, and a guy who 
didn't really know what to do and, you know, really was, would hope that somebody else would call room service for him or, you know, handle an awkward situation. So it was, you know, I was able to grab the ticket before it blew away and we got on the train and it was fine, but it was a really humanizing thing just to see him like geeking out over a coffee machine and temporarily losing his ticket. So he was a human being. And I think that everything on television, even before he died, you know, people had started to think of him as this sort of God and this saint. As amazing and great and singular as he was, he was also a, a deeply human person. And it was in those travel moments that I really I got to see that again in Tokyo, uh, you know, we were alone, the crew was on their way and we had an evening. He said, well, let's grab some dinner in Shinjuku and kind of the fun, young, you know, super crowded neighborhood of Tokyo where there's lots of cheap uh, restaurants. And we went and we just got some very good, but not outstanding yakitori and beer. I was still drinking then. And uh, again, it was like, it wasn't anything special. It wasn't, you know, the secret you know, sushi place in the subway or, you know, the world's best uni or whatever. It was just some some delicious grilled chicken and some beer. And he was really happy, you know, not only to be experiencing this thing that he knew he liked, but to be able to share it with someone who had never experienced it before. And for whatever reason, we really didn't, you know, people didn't approach him. Maybe one or two people noticed him and he stands out, you know, he really stood out in Tokyo as a six foot four guy with, a, you know, he had kind of a big head and he just had a really distinctive look. And for whatever reason that night, people just kind of left him alone. And it was this really kind of special off camera human moment that I, I will always remember with a lot of fondness. Yeah. There's really nothing like traveling with someone. <laughs> In order to get to know them on on a deeper level. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. What a cool experience. I'm curious to know with the production team and stuff, like how are you like whisked from place to place in a swanky car? Are you kind of coddled throughout the whole thing with Tony? Or, you know, do you still get a taste of local life and like unplanned chaos? It seems from that ticket story, <laughs> the vending machine story that there was some unplanned chaos. Yeah, I, you know, there wasn't a ton of chaos, but there were times. I mean, it was in the era that I was working with him. Tony always had his own separate driver and, you know, the crew would go ahead a few hours before him to get lighting set up, to get things ready so that he could just kind of roll in and do his interviews. Uh, I know in a previous era, in the beginning of his television career, it was a little more, you know, six people in a van, including Tony, and they were all kind of, you know, it was all for one and one for all. So he was a little bit coddled, but then there were times where there wasn't coddling to be had. You know, I, I think again of Sri Lanka, where we took a train from Colombo to Jaffna one day, and it was, uh, I think it was 10 hours. We boarded the train at six in the morning, there were horrible floods and, you know, heavy rain in Colombo. We were able to, you know, to get out without any issues with the train tracks, but you could see the flooding on either side of the embankments. And it was really uncomfortable. You know, there was not an air-conditioned train. It was an old train. It had only recently started running again after the war. And it was just hot, so hot, and just a long, long, long trip. And a lot of the crew were not feeling great in their stomachs. Tony had had a, a bout of uh, either, you know, food poisoning or who knows what traveler's stomach. So he was suffering and there was, you know, there was nothing to be done about it. It wasn't like there was going to be a ambulance or a, a limo or whatever. It was just too long a drive. And also they wanted to shoot him on the train. It was a really scenic opportunity that he wasn't willing to give up. So, you know, we in that case, we were all together kind of suffering together on this hot, miserable train. <laughs> and then and there were beautiful moments and we saw these elephants. And, you know, once we got to Jaffna, it was such a relief. And again, it was like what I said at the top of the interview, that the more you kind of suffer along the way, the more rewarding the ultimate endpoint is. But yeah, you know... As much as I moved around with Tony on these shoots, there was it was typically he was protected uh, from most chaos. I know there were other shoots that I was not on, uh, the Congo in particular, and I think uh, Myanmar, you know, things where trains got very delayed. I think Madagascar was another one and Haiti. You know, things don't always go according to plan, and especially in places where people don't have a lot. When the Western television crew choppers in with their food and their 
expensive cameras and their air conditioned cars. It can be things can get dicey and, you know, it just can just feel very awkward for the people who, you know, that are on the crew side of things. You know, you come in, you shoot whatever it is you're shooting and then you get to leave and, and go back to your comfortable life. So there are definitely examples where things got slightly out of hand that, you know, any fans of the show uh, can see when they watch those old episodes. So I know that um, at the end of your trip, you ended up going to the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Now, I had a baby seven months ago and I'm in one of those, you know, what, what it's, I'm sure you can cast your mind back to what that was like. I miss traveling so much and I would love to do something that spontaneous. How did you make that work with the kid at home? And how do you in general like fit a family into your travel plans? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was that was the longest trip. Typically, I would go on one shoot that would be maybe 10 days, and then I would come home. And I think this one was closer to 14. So it was a really long time to be away from my son. At the time, I was still married. So, you know, he was just, he and his dad, back, my son and his dad back at home. And, you know, between the after school program and him being in school, and maybe my in laws got involved a little bit or some neighborhood moms, or I, you know, I, slipped a little cash to some of the neighborhood nannies to take him, you know, with their own charges after school. It was a kind of a patchwork and not easy. You know, the older he got, the easier it was, but it still was still was hard. It's hard to be away from him. And then especially to be, you know, 12, 13 hours difference was hard catching up. I'd just be getting up and he'd just be going to bed. And, you know, it was I it was worth it, but it was never easy. The first time I went away, I think he was in kindergarten. It was the time when I went to Vietnam and I took him to the grocery store and just basically filled a grocery cart with like garbage, you know, snacks, like, you know, these guilt snacks, like, here's a bunch of extra stuff that I normally would never let you eat that's gonna, you know, that eat your feelings, basically, while I'm away, you know, which was ridiculous in hindsight, but it made me feel better to know, like, okay, I'm leaving for 10 days, but he's got all these things that are going to make him really happy every day. So yeah, it's, it is hard. And now it's, you know, my son's 14 now, and I just was away for a week. And he was with his dad, he was having a great time. And it, you know, it's he. It's less. Uh, it, it gets easier as they get older, and especially if you've got a good support network back home. But yeah, it's never. It's never easy to leave your kid. Mm, I'm about to go on a yoga retreat for a week, and it's like it's hard because I know that it's good for me, and if it's good for my mental health and physical well being, then it's going to be better for her. But yeah, the, the mom guilt is real. <laughs> mm-hmm. I found that there was a lot of guilt and anxiety leading up to the you know, the planning of the trip. And like the minute I got in the car to go to the airport, it was kind of like, like, what? I have a kid. I I only vaguely remember. <laughs> it's like once all the all the pieces are in place, I found it very easy to kind of let go of all of that. So hopefully that'll be your experience as well. That's good to hear. I hope so. <laughs> so having had time, many years to reflect on this trip. How do you feel that it changed your life? Well, you know, I, I think that really, as I said before, knowing that I could happily travel sober, that there was a bigger world out there than just the bars and the airport lounges and the cocktails on the plane, that there was that the world was as interesting, if not more so, without uh, the veil of alcohol was really transformative for me. You know, it just made me realize that not only was was travel possible, as a sober person, but also just the the everyday sort of excitement and adventure of living in New York, of having my life, you know, that my world as a as somebody who drank too much, who had gotten kind of small and kind of narrow and predictable, and that my world as someone who doesn't drink anymore has really kind of blossomed. And, you know, I would hear that in early AA meetings and, you know, that you won't believe how big your world is. And I would be like, oh, God, shut up, you know, and then to have it to really see it come true was really edifying and really, really wonderful. And, uh, you know, I take that now wherever I travel. Like I said, I just got back from, I was in Rome and Nice for three days and, uh, you know, staying at these beautiful Onantara hotels where they have, you know, excellent restaurants and fancy cocktail bars. And it was like, 
okay, well, that part of the experience is not for me. You know, what is for me is is everything else, the food, the view, the rooms, you know, all of the luxury service that's not cut off from me just because I'm not having a cocktail or a glass of wine. So, you know, it was just kind of a really necessary perspective shift, that trip in uh, Sri Lanka in 2017. Well, that's so wonderful to hear and congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) I'd love to talk a bit about other stuff that you've been working on. You have a new book in collaboration with Richard Hart. That's about one of my all-time favorite simple pleasures, sourdough bread. Yes. (laughs) Tell us how that project came about. Yeah, this has been a couple of years in the making and we are close to being done with it. Richard is a tremendous baker. Uh, He's British by birth and worked for a long time as a cook and chef in London and then uh, moved to the States and spent many years as the head baker at Tartine after learning how to bake bread in various other places around um, California. And then after several years there, he took Rene Redzepi up on an offer to open a bakery in Copenhagen. So I think starting in 2018, 18, he was based in Copenhagen at Hart Bakery, which is very bread obsessives know that it's it's one of the best bakeries in the world. Just extraordinary bread and pastries, a tiny little storefront. Uh, they also provide the bread for Noma and they have a second location that's more kind of a canteen and a, just a really really, really special place in a city known for having incredible food. And now recently he has just moved to Mexico City and he's going to open up a second bakery in Mexico City, which is really exciting. So it's been, it's really great to get to know Richard and to learn how to bake bread from arguably one of the best bakers in the world. And so this is our working title that I think is going to be the title is A Book About Bread. It's going to be published by Clarkson Potter in 2004. And I was somebody who had never made sourdough bread in my life. I had never made a starter. Uh, You know, I went to culinary school, but we didn't do anything with sourdough. And I just always thought, well, that's really not for me. And through working with Richard, I've become a, a decent bread baker now and someone who really understands the process. And it didn't take that long. So I'm hoping that a lot of other people, whether they're super bread obsessives or they're novices like I was, uh, can find something to love in this book, which is very funny and full of Richard's, you know, sense of humor and all of his little Britishisms. And, you know, we've had a lot of, it's being published by an American publisher, but we've really uh, fought to keep all of his British sensibility in the text. So, uh, I think people will really love it. It also has videos, uh, which, you know, so you really can learn watching Richard's own hands how to do all of the techniques of bread making. Oh, I love that practical element. That sounds great. And you're also writing a memoir, which is exciting. Was it easier to write the story of your own life than the story of Anthony's? Because I know you also authored his biography, which was released a couple of years ago. Yeah, no, it's been much harder. <laughs> I will say I'm in the thick of it now. It's due to my publisher in November of this year, so I'm kind of, you know, hacking away at it every day. And uh, no, it's much harder because it's my story, my I'm having to sort of struggle with myself to have a, a clear perspective on things and to, you know, tell the story in a way that I think is entertaining and engaging. You know, with Tony's story, it was like, well, there's no question that there is a lot of interest in this person, right? He was internationally beloved and people really just can't get enough of his story. You know, I'm less of a known quantity and I think I've had a really interesting life and I've been fortunate to work with a lot of interesting people. But there is that little voice that's like, who do I think I am? You know, telling my own story, like what an arrogant exercise to write my own memoir at the young, young age of 48. But then I then I realized like, well, there's lots and lots of memoirs out there. So my hope is that between, you know, the work I've done with big, complicated people like Mario Batali and like Tony and, you know, my sobriety journey and cooking school and all the travel I've done, I think there's a lot of good stories there. So I'm just kind of, like I said, pecking away at it every day. And uh, and I hope that people uh, find something to relate to and find something to laugh at and uh, maybe learn a little something about the odd life of a celebrity assistant and cook and (laughs) mother and drunk and, you know, all these things. (laughs) I love it. Laurie, thank you so much. You've been awesome. Where can people find you on the internet? 
I am very active on Instagram. My handle is Lori Wollever, just like it's spelled. I'm also on Twitter as Lori Wollever. And then I have a, a website that has all of my writing and various uh, things that I'm that are going on. And that's LoriWollever.com. Before you go, I would love to do a quick fire round if you're up for that. Sure. Okay, let's dive in. What's the one thing every person should experience in their lifetime? I think that every person should experience some form of service, whether that's working in the service industry or just being a volunteer for an hour in some capacity, you know, serving your family or friends, just to have the experience of being on the other side of the table if you've never experienced that. I think it really is such an important part of adding to your empathy as a traveler. If you could teleport anywhere just for the day, where would you go and what would you do? I would go back to Vietnam. I would go to Hue, which was such a lovely city, and I would just eat as many bowls of bumbo Hue as I possibly could before I felt sick. <laughs> What's your top tip for finding the best places to eat while traveling? I use a combination of Instagram and the website, the infatuation, and you know, looking for who's doing the food blog, who's doing the local food blogs. And that was something I learned from Tony, which was, you know, find the obsessive food nerds wherever you're going, and they're gonna have uh, they're gonna lead you to the best places. What's the one thing you never ever travel without? my phone such a lame answer but it's true it's literally it's the most popular answer <laughs> the most common answer what's the new york restaurant you're most excited about right now mm. ernesto's basque spanish restaurant on the lower east side that was purely for my own benefit i was like i want to know what laurie's eating <laughs> yeah um, i'm there all the time and it's so good <laughs> What's a recommendation for a podcast, book, or a show to stay entertained on a long journey? Mm. My number one go-to podcast every week is called Who Weekly, and it's a pop culture entertainment podcast hosted by two really funny people, Bobby Finger and Lindsay Weber. And they basically talk about celebrity gossip, but it's only people that are B, C, D and below list. They don't talk about any A-listers and it's so funny. And so I've learned so much from them. <laughs> it's like reality show contestants and stuff. Yeah. And, you know, the uh, like Brooklyn Beckhams of the world and, you know, Excellent. maybe some minor Kardashians. It's really, really good. What's the most unusual thing you've ever eaten? Oh, gosh. You know, probably, I think I mentioned this earlier in the interview, there's a Sri Lankan vegetable called drumstick. And that's kind of what it looks like. It looks like a, almost like a long, like okra, but it's very long and kind of dried out. And it's when it's not cooked, it's sort of fibrous. And it seems like, am I eating a drumstick? And then when it's cooked correctly, it's really delicious. Oh, I've never heard of that before. Drumsticks. Okay. And finally, where is next on your bucket list? Hmm. Well, I having just got having just gotten back from Rome, I actually am really ready to go back because uh, I've been there twice and both times it's been incredibly whirlwind, like two and a half days in and out. And my bucket list plan for Rome is to go for like two weeks and just fully, fully live the experience and not be, you know, rushed and, and not be jet lagged. So Rome on a leisurely uh, time budget. That sounds wonderful. Thank you so much, Laurie. I really appreciate it. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more inspiring travel stories for your ears. In the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review, and follow so we can keep this adventure going.